So no matter who you are and no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. You're going to see, as you can see, Holly and I are co-teaching today. In a minute, you'll see why that's so uh, relevant. I want to get into this time today by uh, sharing with you an experience that I had here. Um, about six months ago, someone on the staff said to me, uh, you should donate your brain to science. And it was not a kind remark. And I have to confess, it was not an undeserved remark either. Um, and I'll tell you why. I have a, um, I have a habit. When, when I'm here on campus and I have a free space in my schedule, I get on the elevator and leave what we now call the grounded floor. It used to be called the basement. But the people down there now are very grounded, so we're the grounded floor. I take the elevator all the way up to the fourth floor, and then I walk down. And I go into any and every open office. And uh, I stop sharing with them the best and most carefully curated joke of the day. <laughs> Usually these are puns. but. You know, I always say a, a, a pun is its own reward. Reword. <laughs> okay. And I'll just show you the reason that I got that remark from somebody was this particular bit of hilarity. Just for the record, <clears throat> I bought a new turntable. And I am not going to mention the name of our organist who said I needed to <laughs> donate my brain. Here was another one. There's a huge sale going on at stores that sell Legos. People are lined up for blocks. Moms are not in that line. Huh? Moms are not in that line. We, they, they really hurt to step on. I have heard that. <laughs> it's one of the benefits of not having children at this age. <laughs> Every year, hundreds of people are sent off to mime school, never to be heard from again. So I have a condition. Uh, I'm not. Um, the condition I have is seriously somewhere on the Asperger spectrum, but, and so yeah. I am not responsible. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, it, it's, it, I have this compulsion uh -huh. to do this sort of thing. And people are delighted. <laughs> I think they should be anyway. So I want to tell you that, that how my weird brain works that got us here today. Because we're going to talk about non-dual mind today from a neo-feminine perspective. I got that word, I got the word neo-feminine from... Um, um, Ilya Delio and a new book of hers that she edited that I'm reading, by the way. Have mm -hmm. you bought the book? I bought it, yeah. I think it's really good. Mm -hmm. I've yeah. read about three chapters. I mean, mm -hmm. um, I'm learning so much that yeah. I, I did not know. I'm reading a different book from of hers right now. I'll get to that. So Ilya defines um, neo-feminism as deep relationality, unity of love, and wisdom. So you recall, I hope, that we're doing this deep dive into the Gospel of John, and we had gotten to the last of the sign stories, which is the raising of Lazarus. And um, after the raising of Lazarus, the Gospel of John moves into this long speech that is given by Jesus. And um, in that speech, we encountered the fact that the Johannine community that created this gospel is marked by three things. They're marked by fearlessness, they're marked by love, and they're marked by joy. And that led us into talking about the moral obligation to be happy. Now, though the, 
the, the story of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, is a parable that was created by the Johannine community. Two of the characters in that story, Mary and Martha, have historical veracity. And so in John, after the Lazarus story, Jesus is invited into the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus to have dinner. And that story finds its roots in another story that is in the Gospel of Luke. And it is likely one of the most familiar stories in the Christian tradition. I, again, I think that there are so many of this, these stories that people who have never even been to a church or worship service, they know about these stories because they have some cultural currency. We know about the Mary and Martha story. So um, it's a story that I think is incredibly relevant to this um, scary time that we're in, which, by the way, Dr. Bangston talks about today as a whirlwind. Um, and uh, we're talking about it. I started talking about it as um, the collective dark night of the soul. That's where we are. So that's the thinking that got us into where we are today. That, I love this symbology of Lazarus as being moving from death into life, moving from dark into light. And when we think about you know, this, how do we move from dark into light? How do we move from death into life? We have to have a change. Something has to shift. So one of the things I love about the darkness metaphor as also being deeply feminine is that it's both an end and a beginning. We began in the dark and it's likely how we'll end. When we die, we go dark. <laughs> but we also become part of something of all that is. Everything emerged from the dark, and Genesis starts with, Earth was a soup of nothingness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. I love that maternal image of God brooding, like a mother hen almost. Catherine Keller, who's one of my favorite theologians, says that the face of the deep, the one that brooded over that abyss, was a woman's face. The Hebrew word for deep or abyss is tihom, which is a feminine word. So she surmises that the feminine is responsible for all that is. Another favorite of mine is from St. Ephraim of Syria. The power that governs all dwelt in a small womb. While dwelling there, he was holding the reins of the universe. So is that your artwork? Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Thank you. It's a great quote. So here's the story for those two or three of you who don't know it. As they continued their travel, Jesus entered a village. Now this is not from John, this is from Luke. A woman by the name of Martha welcomed him and made him feel quite at home. She had a sister, Mary, who sat before the master, hanging on every word he said. But Martha was pulled away by all she had to do in the kitchen. Later, she stepped in, interrupting them. Master, don't you care that my sister has abandoned the kitchen to me? Tell her to lend me a hand. The master said, Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much and getting yourself worked up over nothing. One thing only is essential, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course, and it won't be taken from her. The usual way of interpreting this parable, by the way, is, uh, in my experience, over a long period of time, preachers love to tell the story as an admonition for the parishioners to listen to me. <laughs> that's what that's the way it's been used so as, as I've indicated what led me to this particular story at this time is turning my attention to what in the Christian tradition is called the dark night of the soul now that phrase comes to us from a the writings of a monk uh, that we know a Carmelite monk that we know is John of the Cross that was not his real name Monks forego the use of their given names when they enter the religious order uh, of, of their choosing. Um, Thomas Merton's name, for example, in the monastery in Gethsemane was Father Lewis. So John of the Cross 
had been enlisted by Teresa of Avila. And Sherry and I were able to visit her place in Avila years and years and years ago in Spain. And at the time, I don't think they had a realization, the people there had a realization of how risky it is to invite tourists into certain places because we just had access of the place where Teresa was, where that was her, her cell, where was her bedroom, where was her little study, that, that sort of thing. So Teresa had enlisted John, who's much younger than she, to help her in her reform movement of the Carmelite order in Spain at that time. And this Carmelite order was known as the Descaled order. And what that means is that they didn't wear shoes because that was their way to show that they were participating in the, in the, in the command of Jesus to forego all sorts of luxuries, so they, they went barefoot. Both Teresa and John of the Cross wrote some significant writings. And um, John of the Cross wrote The Dark Night of the Soul. He wrote uh, two volumes called The Ascent of Mount Carmel. Uh, he wrote The Spiritual Canticles. And these are generally required readings for those who are seeking to be certified in spiritual direction. They're not easy to read. I mean, they're not difficult, but they're just really old. 16th, 15th, 16th century writings. And what I found interesting about them when I first read them is they don't, they're not written in religious language. Now there's a clue right there about how we can deal with this time in which we're living is that we don't have to wall off things into the unfortunate divisions of sacred and secular. Uh, Teresa is also considered to be required reading for spiritual directors. So both John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila use the story of Mary and Martha to illustrate the spiritual practices required to navigate the dark night of the soul. They both talk now, you're going to have a hard time believing this. They both talk about the importance of having a daily spiritual practice. They do. And that's what we're going to talk about some today. They also, and these are in footnotes, talk about the importance of using your turn signal. But not. So, but turn signals can't be your daily spiritual practice, according to Bill. That, that, well, it would, that was, it's part of it, I think. <laughs> You can't use a two-for-one there. <laughs> so uh, I read years and years and years ago the writings of John of the Cross and the writings of Teresa. They rival the writings of Freud and you. They, they really do anticipate a lot that happened in the field of, of, of psychology around addiction, particularly, and around what we would now refer to as attachment theory. Uh, but now you're going to find that in a lot of the mystics of, uh, of that era and later, Meister Eckhart, for example, really is big on what we would call attachment theory. So i uh, give you kind of an encapsulation of the kinds of things that both John and Teresa stress. Each of them stress that God is inside of us. Or I'll make that more personal. God is inside of you. God is inside the person sitting next to you. God is inside the neighbor you live next door to who has a political position that you know nobody in their right mind would embrace. God is in Vladimir Putin. When they talk about the soul, they're talking about not something you have, but something you are. Since for them, we are already in union with sacred mystery, this union is not something we can achieve or seek for. It is rather something that we allow. And we do this according to both John and Teresa, by having a spiritual practice. Okay? These are kind of their summaries.
And if having a spiritual practice, um, if the dark night of the soul leads us to become aware of and experience the kinds of things that they are talking about, then the dark night of the soul is valuable, if not an essential experience. And for John and Teresa, there are two kinds of spiritual practice. There is meditation and there is contemplation. And here's where they use the story of Mary and Martha. Martha, who is busy in the kitchen preparing food and taking care of guests, is an example of meditation. Meditation is an active undertaking. It's coming to this class. It's um, reading. It's praying. It's participating in rituals. It's attending talks. It's walking the labyrinth. It's standing in protest with those who are against what happened in the Supreme Court this week. It's getting involved in marches for justice. It's all the things that one participates in at one's own initiation. And there are lots of things that fall in the category of spiritual practice. Yes, golf is a spiritual practice. But it's probably better spiritual practice if it's, it's grounded in something before you play golf. But there's nothing that could not be part of spiritual practice. Okay? Meditation is that active participation. And one of the ways, one of the metaphors that both John and uh, Teresa use is that of gardening, uh, which I don't do. But gardening is where you go out and you tend to the garden and you do what's required to make the garden come. Mar it's Martha in the kitchen is that kind of thing. Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, is an example of, of contemplation. And in contemplation, we are the plants in the garden that are receiving the benefits of the water, the work of the gardener, the sun, the nutrients, the work of others, all of that's a passive undertaking. My favorite story about this kind of contemplative practice, and I don't know if this is a real thing that happened or not, maybe one of those made up stories that this reporter interviewed Teresa of Calcutta and said, I understand that you pray an hour a day. Is that true? And she said, yes. And he said, well, what if you don't have time to pray an hour a day? And she <laughs> said, well, then I pray two hours a day. He said, really, what do you say to God during all of this time? She said, I don't say anything. I just listen. Oh, well, what does God say to you during those two hours? And she said, God doesn't say anything. God just listens. <laughs> So in talking about this collective dark night of the soul, I concur, it feels this way. And to say it feels this way, really I mean it is this way. <laughs> um, our ideas about freedom are being challenged, it feels at every turn. It feels like we've gotten so far away uh, on a societal level from what you talk so much about, which is loving kindness and compassion. I saw this graphic on Instagram and it seemed sort of relevant. <laughs> if you can't read it, hold on, now I can't read it because it's too far away. Um, 1984, which was a dystopian, go ahead, thanks, novel. Uh, Fahrenheit, four, I, can't, I can't even read, 4481, Brave New World and A Handmaid's Tale, and we're somewhere in that intersection of the four. Right? All of these are dystopian novels that I was required to read in high school. <laughs> And we, some of us may have seen The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu recently. Recently, my family was somewhere in Texas. We were just on a long road trip, and we were driving home. We were listening to a news blurb. Josh likes this kind of New York Times in 15 minutes podcast. And we were listening to the ongoing results of the January 6th hearings. And a mother and her adult daughter, so an older woman and her probably around my age daughter, were interviewed um, or put on the stand, they were from Georgia, both poll workers, and they gave testimony about being pressured to participate in overturning the election results. And by, not, not just by people, but by one of the then president's direct staff members being called on the phone and threatened to overturn these, these results. The daughter talked about feeling terrified. She didn't want to leave the house. 
She was fearful of what might happen to her. She was fearful of being followed, of maybe even being killed. Not a feeling we're supposed to have in a liberal democracy. But that's the power of the dark, that it can make us feel afraid. The mother talked about her anger and disappointment, about one of the most sovereign rights that a person has being threatened. She was probably alive when the civil rights movement was happening. And she wrote, you know, we, we fought for this already. And now that's being challenged again. She also said, she's not going to stop working on behalf of what is right and good. That is what the dark can do, is motivate us to get to work. I've spent the better part of the last three years feeling dismayed, disappointed, and I would say some days just downright sad about the state of the world. I can't say that I've been morally obligated to happiness, <laughs> but I've, I've been content. And the, the thing that keeps me content, and there's a distinction there for me, happiness um, feels like something that we achieve. Uh, all of our product lines in the United States tend to sell happiness, right? Contentment to me is being present to what is, being okay with what is, subtle difference. One of the synonyms for content is actually happy, but I, I still feel like there's this subtle difference. Happiness is something to achieve, contentment is something that you just are. Part of being content then is one of the central meanings of this Mary and Martha story to me. It's being present to what is right in front of you, to what your task is, whether it's contemplation or meditation, action or thought. It even means embracing the darkness. Especially this week, I'm acutely aware of the many women who have come before me to fight for my right to be here. I don't mean my right to be alive. I mean my right to be here, educated, teaching, sitting in this chair. Thank you, because some of you are in this room. A whole lineage of women predate Mary and Martha even to give us this right to stand up and use our voices to empower those who will come after me. It feels now that that responsibility is on my generation. It seems that the rights we've worked so hard to fight for are steadily being redacted. I know I can't just sit back and enjoy the fruits of somebody else's labor at this point, that I have to find a way to sort of answer this holy call to continue bold action. When I read about the stories that Jesus used in his ministry, he's so deeply honoring of the feminine in his teachings. And Bill and I were discussing some of the dangers of a man trying to be the primary teacher of the feminine. <laughs> you, and these were your words, and this is a word that's become very popular. Mansplaining <laughs> is what it can feel mm -hmm. like. Um, I don't think that this is what Jesus does. He doesn't say, let me tell you how to be feminine. He uses an example with people in it and illustrates it through the, the, the visuals given. And like always, this story is here for us to digest and work with and continue to evolve and to continue to apply for its significance in this time. It is, as Bill was just talking to, about, a, a story about contemplation and action, or what we're saying is meditation and contemplation, about the importance of both and, and how they work together to create wholeness. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it occurred to me, Holly, that I don't think either one of us really talking about today how the story was originally used in Luke. But it really was used in a way to elevate women, mm -hmm. right? To, uh, but we I get into that a little. Later. Hmm? I'll get into that a little later. You will? Mm -hmm, okay. My spiritual director, um, who is also a Jungian analyst and very highly trained in the Enneagram, uh, a woman that I love a lot, suggested to me a couple of years ago, I think this is prior to the pandemic, that in her own work with me and my own spiritual work, that she said, I, I, I sense that what you are being called to is intimacy with grace. She doesn't like to use the word God either, which I think is something that speaks to me. I mean, uh, I, I like that. She is, by the way, a Roman Catholic nun. Um, and, but she knows that I am spoken to by Gothic art and, and architecture. So she said, I want to suggest that in your daily spiritual practice, you use this um, 
you know, this visio divina, we have lectio divina, you know, we read passages of scripture, all that sort of stuff. But she said, I want to suggest visio divina, visual stuff. I want to suggest that being called to intimacy with, with grace or the sacred involves the feminine. And she referred me to this icon. This icon, was, you know, they don't call icons something that are painted. They call uh, an icon is written. And this icon was written somewhere in the early part of the 1100s, maybe 1120 or something like that. It's been redone by the Greek Orthodox group to look like this. And is um, the, the, um, uh, the original icon is called the sweet kissing icon, the one that I first showed you. And this icon is called the blue Madonna. And she... I love it. I think it's a, it's very uh, it's very beautiful, and you can just see something uh, in it. So in John, we're doing a deep dive in John. Remember, okay. <laughs> um, the community heard Jesus say, "It's expedient for you that I go away. If I do not go away." The Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send the Comforter to you. When the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, is come, he, that's how it's translated, will guide you into all truth. Now, we have so objectified and idealized women or misunderstood and belittled the feminine that uh, it makes us think when we hear the word comfort in the Gospel of John to think that it is meant to provide the kind of comfort that says, there, there, everything's going to be okay. The word comfort in John doesn't mean that. So that um, what my director said is that when you look at this icon, it is supposed to stir up fire. If meditation doesn't rouse us to be honest and seek for freedom on the part of all people, then it's not good meditation. A fact that women um, aren't free in our culture is, is something we need to look at. The fact that women are not treated equally in our culture is something that we need to pay attention to. I mean, just the simple fact that women doing equal jobs that men do, they don't get paid the same amount. There is a, a Benedictine nun whose name is Joan Chittister, and she says that because of this lack of feminine, the entire human population is like a person trying to walk through life using only one leg. So in the past, Holly and I have both talked about two ways of knowing the sacred. One is the cataphatic, which means knowing grace through words and symbols and images and the like. The word cataphatic comes from the Greek word meaning affirmation, I affirm. And the other way of knowing or experiencing the sacred is through what's called the apophatic way, and that comes from the Greek word meaning to deny. That is to say, not to know. I can't claim to know. It's standing in the presence of mystery that cannot be said, cannot be known can be apprehended, I mean, we can be apprehended by this mystery, we can experience this mystery, but we don't own it, and we can't completely say what it is. Gerald May, in his book, Dark Night of the Soul, says that the way of knowing, and I would add the arrogance of knowing for sure, belongs to men. Think about it. Men make a lot of the decisions. It's male energy. The way of not knowing 
the way uh, or, or knowing grace through darkness, absence, silence, and mystery belongs to feminine energy. And it takes both. Thomas Berry, in his uh, book, the, the Great Work, Our Way into the Future is Quite Clear. Thomas Berry mm -hmm. sa yes. says we won't make it without feminine energy. He didn't say it will be difficult to make without feminine energy. He says we won't make it without feminine energy. Mm -hmm. Here's what he says. The wisdom of women is to join the knowing of the body to that of the mind, to join soul to spirit, intuition, intuition to reasoning, feeling, consciousness to intellectual analysis, intimacy to detachment, Subjective presence to objective distance. I have heard uh, Richard Rohr say on numerous occasions that Jesus had the head and body of a man and the heart and soul of a woman. Our point in talking about the spiritual task of embracing both and at the same time or living comfortably with constant contradiction is that we need this as we journey into a new future, as we navigate this dark time and go into whatever is next, we need both of these energies together. We certainly need it um, for this time. We got a choice. We can hide our heads in the sand. We can deal with trivial matters. Or we can embrace the things that scare us in service of love, honesty, and freedom. So Thomas Berry was one of the inspirations behind the institution where I'm doing my PhD. You put me on to him. Yeah, he's a great thinker. And, you know, I think about the darkness. So often we think the darkness is a place where we can't see, and so that this idea of dormancy or passivity comes up. But I think that the darkness is also an invitation to see, to learn how to see. And there's two things I really want to illustrate about this story and hopefully give us some food for thought. One is that our work is in this world, right here in front of us. It is the realities of this time that we need to act upon. And I'll specifically focus on Martha in that regard. The second one is our work is also within. That's part of the darkness to go inward, to go into the retreat. The kind of wisdom we need is explicitly feminine, and as I mentioned before, the darkness, according to Catherine Keller, is explicitly feminine. It's generative, it's relational, it requires our rapt attention, and I'll specifically focus on Mary in this regard. In many circles, especially ones more traditional than this one, Martha has come to represent the distracted busyness of the world, or indicating the place of the woman in the kitchen, or insinuating that Martha is not doing her holy work whereas her sister is. It's often used to compare the two. For years, this story has illustrated the importance of Mary, minimizing Martha's work, but feminist scholars assert that this is a deep mishandling of the text. Actually, Martha is a really strong character. She's complex and she's layered and rich. She's not just a complainer. And I just learned this. You probably already knew this. Martha's the patron saint of the kitchen. I did not know that. Yeah. I thought that was St. William. Well, maybe there's a female and a, ma a male. <laughs> oh, you mean, I just got that. I'm like, who's St. William in my mind? <laughs> it's him. Um, <laughs> so Martha, part of her title is as the patron saint of the kitchen and, and of giving. And what is food but the most glorious demonstration of love and communion? On the other hand, I mentioned The Handmaid's Tale earlier, and I have watched this whole Hulu series, and I can't decide if it's for me to like face <laughs> what I fear or to just like, I don't know. I don't, it's definitely not altogether healthy. Anyways, the, the cooks are ubiquitously called Marthas in The Handmaid's Tale. And I read this book in high school too, but that's been 35 years. And calling them Marthas is not meant as a compliment. It's not meant to revere. They're not saints. It's meant to strip their identities, to lump them into a category of sameness and servitude. The tricky thing about the feminine is that uh, it can be used against us. 
as well as to empower us. So we have to find that sort of sweet spot. In our culture, the feminine has so often been associated with subordinates or weakness. In this case, however, Martha represents bold action. She goes directly out in the story to meet Jesus. One could say that Jesus represents wisdom or the world coming in, and he chooses to come to their house, to the home of two women, not with a whole entourage, just him, thereby uplifting the role of the women. And he does not rebuke her or reproach her when she comes directly out to meet him, not typical of the female role in those days. She return, he returns her directness with respect and love, not with reproach. The second thing is she's assertive and independent. <laughs> she asks Jesus direct questions and she challenges him. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? To a spiritual teacher, to a prophet, she says this. <laughs> Do you not care? And he says gently back to her. He answers her gently. And later she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like kind of a, prove yourself. <laughs> I, I can kind of appreciate that boldness that she comes with. And number three, she's apparently unmarried. She's well off enough to have and to maintain her own home and she seems that she's educated and or intelligent. Here in this picture, she, in this painting by a Flemish artist, she's holding a book, which is a clear indication that she is intellectually trained. And again, Jesus seems to be honoring her by being in her home, by telling her, not admonishing her for not doing what Mary's doing, but to, in a way to say, don't compare yourself to your sister. It's not about an either or. It's not about who's better or worse. You do you, Martha. Mary's doing Mary. Your sister's doing good, and so are you. In this painting, I said, I already said this, she's holding a book, and she's, she's not holding it upside down. Anyone notice that? Okay. Um, <laughs> there's also an indication in, that Martha was a teacher and a disciple, that her worries were not so much about Mary, but about something far bigger than what she was making everyone for dinner, but the kitchen representative of the community, of feeding the community. And she's worried about her ministry. She's worried about the people that she is in service to. And those, uh, feminist scholars say that those were the worries she was bringing to Jesus. I am worried about my table. The kitchen might be more symbolic perhaps of the spiritual food that she provides. And the grammar in the original telling of the story indicates that Martha was constantly being pulled concerning much. So she had a lot of responsibilities. Both of the sisters are known as sitters. And the, the, the phrase sitting at the feet was the traditional vocabulary of discipleship, male or female. So that they were sitters at the feet of Jesus indicates that they had an important role in discipleship and ministry. So what can this mean today? I think certainly it is a call that women are needed and welcomed and longed for in leadership. Perhaps that the feminine is needed to take bold action in the world. Martha represents that action, the action part of spiritual practice. I want to be very, very clear here because feminine masculine isn't another binary. It's not trying to say female, male. Females are needed, males are not. That is not what I'm saying. Each one of us has a feminine. Each one of us has a masculine. Our society has been far, far, far to the, to the masculine and we've lost touch with our feminine and what is holy and relational and life-giving. So talking about honoring the feminine does not negate masculine energy. It says we need to come into balance with it. It's not a zero-sum game. There's room for both, and as the title today indicates, it is both and, not either or. So when we talk about the dark night of the soul, I don't want us to be gloomy. It's no, it's, it's really fertile there, actually. <laughs> um, but I think honesty, love, honesty, freedom, honesty, compels us to say we're in some dark times. 
And um, I think we're in dark times because of what you just said, that we are in the vice-like grips of patriarchy and we've neglected this feminine. We have, we, we have enough energy of the linear. We don't have enough energy of the inclusive, what embraces everything. I have spent hours, I mean hours and hours, uh, reflecting on what in the world has happened to us. And I don't know when, what it was. Um, I kind of go back to George Floyd as a nodal point. I know there have been many, many points that we, we could do. I try to do this without judgment. Um, but that's a nodal point I return to over and over and over again. I think something broke in our culture with George Floyd. Broke open, I mean, in that sense, for us to see something. Didn't change a whole lot. I think we got more awareness. But. And then the, that COVID thing hit. I grieve the loss of some of the things we had prior to COVID, just like you do. I, I do. And I'm, I'm beginning to believe that some things will never return to the way they were. I talked to somebody this week. Um, my pastoral way of dealing with people who don't show up here is to complain and fuss. Where the hell have you been? You know, kind of thing. And the interest we got out of the habit. It's easier on to live stream than to do to get dressed, get up and get dressed and go here and so. Sometimes I do the noontime communion uh, here and I had it's very poorly attended. I'm not trying to get you to do that, but somebody said, um, I, I miss the nine forty five service here on Sunday. And I said, I don't think we'll ever do it again. I don't think we'll ever do it again. Too many things have gotten out of place in terms of personalities and all that sort of thing. Our world, our country is drifting, drifting into autocracy. And I hear public officials, I've heard people say since the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court thing, oh, we're gonna address this in November. I don't think so. I don't mean to be pessimistic. I'm just saying that's not the momentum of the country. And we got to face that. We have created such a culture of frightened people that a growing majority of people would rather live by violence or under autocracy rather than getting to know their neighbor. I learned a new word this week. I love words. I love language. And I got a new word from Diana Butler Bass. Do you take her emails? I do, but I am not always consistent at reading it. So I didn't read this one. I got a new word. I didn't put it on the slides. Gundamentalism. <laughs> it's a new word, right? Because, um, and Dr. Mason talks about this in his sermon today. He talks about those people, he didn't use this exact language, but he, he talks about people who use weapons as tools versus those who use weapons as idols of trust and power. And it's so ironic to me that we print in God we trust on all of our money which is the furthest thing from this culture's myth. So I want to return to John. In one of the long speeches Jesus gives in John, there is some guidance for us. Now I hope to high heaven that by this time you know that the historic Jesus did not give long speeches. Those come from his followers almost a century later. They're good, they're worthy of our paying attention, but 
the historic Jesus didn't go around giving speeches. This is what Jesus says. I've told you all of this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties, but take heart. I've conquered the world. That's in John 16. And the word that is translated difficulties here, translated tribulation in um, the Revised Under Version, um, means pressure. So that um, we can relate to that pressure, either outwardly or inwardly. Almost without exception, the last good while, people that I see for direction or counseling um, bring up initially what they are experiencing in the outer world as part of our agenda. The economy, gas prices, mass shootings, racial equality, inequality, fears about democratic institutions, and on and on, on it goes. So here's Jesus saying, eh, don't worry, I got it handled. He did say that according to the community. And I want to say, for God's sakes, what do you got in mind, buddy? <laughs> How do we do this? Well, we're going to get into this next week when we talk about myth, but there are all sorts of answers to that question throughout the Gospel of John as well as in the other Jesus narratives. But here's one from Matthew I'll give you. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. You will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me and you learn how to live freely and lightly. Hmm. So <clears throat> we walk the way that Jesus walked. That's how we do it. And here's the line from Sarah Grant that both Holly and I love so much. It isn't the way because he walked it. He walked it because it's the way. So walking it means having a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> Don't belittle it. And having a daily spiritual practice means engaging in meditation and contemplation. Inward journey that must go outward. There's a book um, by Elia Delio. Did you like the picture I found? You know, I looked at that uh, this week when you no. put it up there, and I thought, who is that guy? Who's that guy? That's Bill. That's <laughs> a couple years ago at the Roscoe Show. I remember that now. Mm -hmm. That was fun. Yeah, and it's, it's a great little book. It's a, based on a series of lectures she gave, and the title alone, A Hunger for Wholeness, says so much. I think we are starving for wholeness. And part of that is finding this union between the masculine and feminine, between the light and the dark, and between doing and being. Mary is said um, to be listening at the feet of the master, learning, absorbing, thinking. This is one of the opportunities for the present darkness, to observe, to learn, to absorb it. Another interpretation does say, however, that Mary might not even be there, that she's out abroad preaching and teaching in service of expanding the beloved community that her sister is expressing concern for her well-being. So there's actually two interpretations of whether Mary was even present or if she's out in the world. For our purposes, though, we're going to take it to mean sitting at the feet and that she's in contemplation and in a uniquely feminine way. One of the things I think is needed is to respond to the power and control exerted over the feminine but not in a way that recreates domination and separation, rather in a way that brings forth relatedness, that inherent wholeness at the heart of the universe. It is from that wholeness that we came, and it is to it that we return. It's in it that we sit. These two women, when they're set against each other, again, the admonishment from Jesus is, do not compare yourself. Then we so easily get into binary either or thinking but when we can see these two as aspects of wholeness, we don't have to choose one over the other. We just choose which one to be in any given moment. And as Bill said, anything we do can be an act of meditation. Are we doing it with the thoughtfulness and mindfulness of contemplation? 
When Mary represents the feminine wisdom and Jesus pointing out that she is doing good is his way of subverting conventional wisdom around gender roles and highlighting that women have incredibly important theological and wisdom roles to bring to the society. And it's a call to us to bring forth our inner feminine energy as and trust that it is wise. It's also a call to be bold, as in the actions of Martha. These alternative values were not just alternative in the time of Jesus and Mary and Martha, they're still alternative today. And so to be feminine, to call on the feminine in some way, is also to be subversive. And it is always to empower those who have been historically oppressed and marginalized. I'll return to Catherine Keller for a minute, and her whole theology is about the possibilities available when we engage with the dark and the depths we face when we practice contemplation. This is perhaps why we want to turn away, is because it's hard, because the dark is chaotic and it feels unknown. She writes, though, that the Tehomic ethic to love is to bear with the chaos. How do we bear with the chaos? Tihomic theology works in service of hope and renewal. And the dark is actually, I said this earlier, is fertile, creative, and life-giving. Seeds grow in the dark. Yes, they need light, but their roots plant in the dark. Bearing with these internal tensions of being and doing, contemplation and action, simulate new ways of liberation. And this feminine aspect of liberation of radical relatedness is to see ourselves as whole, participate in that whole. I'll skip to um, the poem that we'll close with because it's beautiful. <laughs> um, the fundamental point to walk away with, I think, is not to compare Mary and Martha, but to be with the both andness of them to be in that creative and challenging tension between contemplation and action, and put together this is what makes discipleship, using that word in quotations. Frederick Douglass said, we're skipping a lot because we gotta go, huh? I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. Fred Frederick Douglass had to imagine freedom. He had to think about it. He had to know what he wanted from it, and then he did that for a long time. And then he walked. He literally set himself free. No one else did it. And he had to embrace the fear of what, could, what the reality was that could have happened to him. He could have been murdered. He could have been caught, sent back to enslavement. But he went towards the light from the darkness. This kind of thoughtful action is sorely needed today. And I'll close by sharing a poem from Rilke. God speaks to each of us as God makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing, embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. I love that. Thank you. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step. And if those of you who are physically present today can aid in cleaning out the space, you'll be given some guidance in the back of the room. See you here next week. <laughs>